Welcome everyone to one more edition of the Privacy with Live Talk. Today we are here with Professor Solov. He doesn't need any introductions, but I will talk a little bit about his amazing, incredible, groundbreaking work in the privacy field. So Professor Solov, welcome to the Privacy with Live Talk. So Professor Solov is a professor of intellectual property and, and technology law at George Washington University. He's president and CEO of Teach Privacy. He's the co-founder of the Privacy and Security Academy. He's one of the most well-known, respected, and prolific privacy scholars of our time, and I'm super honored and excited to be here with him. He has various published books, and I want to tell a story I have here, this book. If, if you study privacy, if you've ever studied privacy, you know, it's understanding privacy. And I, I want to show you that it's still with the markers. It was the first book I read when I was starting my master's. So I got my introduction to privacy was this book. So I wanted to, I, I didn't remove the markers. Uh, also, if you didn't read, I recommend. Also, if you're starting, if you want to work in the privacy field, if you want to have um, foundations, it's a great book. Um, one of the, if you, if you go, so one of the most popular books of Professor Solov, Information Privacy Law, a case book. So this understanding privacy, nothing to hide. The false, the false trade-off between privacy and security, also breached, why data security laws fail, law fails, and how to improve it. Um, also, this is about books and about num uh, papers. He doesn't talk much about that in his own newsletter and his social, but I I'm going to talk about his numbers, his incredible numbers in terms of publications, amazing, very uh, groundbreaking papers, and constant and and every paper has thousands of downloads so he has the most popular paper if you go to the social science research network the most popular paper in the topic privacy is his paper i've got nothing to hide and other misunderstandings of privacy it has 220,000 downloads and on total he has 420,000 downloads and he's number 11 of all social science research networks so and this about numbers and he never stops so it's difficult to catch up with Professor Solov because he's always publishing. So some of his recent papers that I, I recommend everyone to check them out. So they're all available at the Social Science Research Network, so SSRN. Murky consent, an approach to the fictions of consent in privacy law. By the way, I love that it was the topic. Consent in privacy was the topic of my master's thesis where I read this book about, so I love this paper. It's very good, very interesting. Uh, data vu, why, why breaches involve the same stories again and again. Data is what data does, regulating use, harm, and risk instead of sensitive data. The prediction society, they're very interesting. He talks about algorithms and the problems of forecasting the future. So it's also about this intersection between uh, privacy and AI and the limitations of privacy rights. So all those are from 2023. So we, we, we are still in June and he has published all that. So he's unbeatable. It's difficult to catch up and he's a central figure in the privacy community. And, and again, thank you so much, Professor Solov, to be here, for, for being here with us today. Uh, and for those who don't know, I'm Luisa Jarowski. I'm the author of the Privacy Whisperer newsletter. I'm also the founder of Implement Privacy. And Today, we are going to talk about another paper that we didn't uh, yet mention, Privacy Harms. So Professor Solov wrote together with Professor Danielle Citron. It was the paper, it, it's published in the Boston University Law Review, which was published in 2022. And I think it's, I, I wanted, the, the whole story is like this. I wanted so much to hear Professor Solov's opinion about this intersection of privacy and AI. I think it's super relevant for every privacy professional now with 
AI hype and AI governance emerging and new challenges. Uh, we, we, it's still an open question how we're going to deal with them and how privacy harms and privacy issues can intersect with AI. So I, I think that this paper, it's a great way to start a conversation. And, and some of the ideas that he and Daniel put in, in the paper can help us um, place this debate in a more uh, in a more concrete way and understand specific issues that I think privacy can help uh, AI to, to, to stand stronger, let's say this. So the plan for today is the following. First, I'm going to briefly comment the paper for those who didn't read. And anyway, I invite everyone to read. It's a great paper and super uh, relevant with important topics for today's reality and AI and so, and so on. And then we are going to discuss some questions that are prepared. And uh, the first ones are mostly about harm, uh, exclusively privacy harm. And the, the next ones, the, the following ones are more about the intersection between privacy and AI. And then we open for questions. So if you have questions, please uh, write them down and, and wait for the, for the end of the, the main discussion. So about Professor Solov's and Daniel Citron's and Professor Daniel Citron's article. So I, I, it, it's split in two parts. So the first, the, the name is privacy harms, and the the main goals that they state they wanted to first provide a typology of privacy harm to help courts to deal with those issues and to tackle them better. So sometimes we are going to talk about the challenge of privacy harms. They are not the same as traditional fields of law. So. Uh, the, the first game was the first aim of the paper was this typology to help courts, and the second aim was to provide an approach uh, of when privacy harm should be required and help align uh, enforcement goals and remedies. So a typical litigation issue sometimes there are no incentives for lawyers, and sometimes we should not focus on uh, giving the money back to the to the to the, to the customer. So it, there are different litigation, uh, let's say, and enforcement issues in privacy harm. So that, that's the, the main goals that the the paper aims to solve. In the first half of the paper, they talk about the challenges of privacy harm uh, and also the, the liti specific litigation issues. In the second half, they talk about the, the typology, so the, the seven types of harms. And just so that we, we have this uh, clearer picture, these are, I'm going to read the list of harms. So the, in, in the paper, there are seven types of harms, physical, all types of privacy harms. So it can be physical harms, economic harms, reputational harms, psychological harms, and those psychological, they can be emotional distress or disturbance, autonomy harms, which can be coercion, manipulation, failure to inform, thwarted expectations, lack of control and chilling effects, discrimination harms and relationship harms. So this is the base. So we are, we are starting, this is our baseline. We are starting the, the conversation, having this uh, privacy harms in mind. And let's think of how we can, we can uh, move from here and, and, and push privacy forward and, and bring privacy to the forefront. So, uh, Daniel, would you like to, to comment on something else that I didn't say about the paper, something that you think it's relevant or is important everyone to know before we move to the questions? Yeah, I thought you did a great job summarizing the paper. Um, and I'll just say a couple things about the paper and its, its goal. Um, so the, the, the purpose of the paper is to um, uh, better articulate the um, problems of, or the, the harms of privacy um, because courts and legislatures are, we're not really getting it in certain cases or, or we're fairly inconsistent about recognizing them. So a lot of the, the paper is really about uh, focusing on those harms that especially courts could uh, address. 
uh, and that the law was currently not adequately redressing. Uh, so we really were focused a lot on, you know, what, what are certain harms that um, uh, we're having some trouble kind of getting fully litigated into the courts. And that was our, our primary focus was courts, um, but secondarily, you know, recognition of, of the, the harms by legislatures. So it's very much about what harms could be cognizable in, uh, you know, specific litigation uh, to address. And, and that's what led us to uh, look at these. And for each one, um, there actually is uh, a basis in the law, analogous other bodies of law that recognize these harms that can arise from privacy violations. Uh, and so we really were trying to uh, show that, you know, that uh, there is a, a good foundation in the law for this uh, that is often ignored uh, or that courts are very inconsistent about recognizing, uh, but that each one has a pretty solid foundation to be uh, to be recognized, contrary to what a lot of folks, uh, you know, courts and others would would say, which is, well, you know, these 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 harms are just too ethereal or, or just too insubstantial uh, to be recognized, uh, which I think is is wrong. Uh, you know, courts recognize this, these types of harms all the time. Great. Thank you so much. And um, so let's, I prepared a few questions for us to discuss, so, also to, for us to have more, more co concrete examples and also to, to, to make this, this bridge between privacy and AI. So specifically about this notion of privacy harms, and also, I you're, you're, you have a paper uh, about taxonomy of privacy, a very important notion. Also, it's it's also in this book it, it, you talk about it. So, my, my one initial thought when I was reading, and it inspired me a lot. It, uh, and we will talk about it. I write in my PhD. I write about the, the harms, and I try to, to explain in a different way as well. Uh, why talking about privacy harms now? So, do you think so? Where, where did the idea to write this paper come from? Do you think reality changed? And now we need to, uh, the harms are more challenging now or, or it's just a litigation aspect that you saw that lit litigation was failing and was not tackling. So my, my first question is, where did this idea came from to write this paper with Professor Daniel Citron, that to write this typology of harm and to ex kind of expand? I think it's an expansion. I think the way you, you, you put it in a very nuanced way, for example, autonomy harm, which one the type that I discussed in the PhD, you, you put very uh, subcategories and it, it really, exp I know it's in the law, but it expanded, it brought, it brought the notion of the harm in a, in a more concrete, in a more uh, even creative, creative way that will help practitioners and courts to deal with the issues better. But so my, my first question is this, so where, why now? So why talking about this uh, typology now? And did reality change or did courts start behaving differently? And, and uh, so in what sense do we need to talk about it now? I wish I had a more uh, profound answer, but but this actually uh, the reason why it was uh, published now uh, was because it took us a long time to do it. Um, we started probably around ten years ago, and Danielle and I were having a conversation at lunch, and it was actually her idea to uh, you know we really should write a paper on privacy harms because you know courts were just you know, botching it left and right. Uh, and, 
you know, it, this was this was after I'd, I'd written Understanding Privacy, where I had a, a taxonomy, but that taxonomy was focused on privacy problems and a way of of conceiving of privacy, like what is privacy? And, and so that taxonomy was really trying to lay out what privacy was. I had certain problems, but those problems actually, each problem could involve many of these different types of harms. Uh, and so, you know, Danielle and I were talking about, well, the harms you can grab onto and, and you know, which, which would be the starting point for uh, a litigation or the starting point for uh, passing a law um, you know what 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 do those look like and 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 you should write something about that and then you know we we talked about it we started drafting uh but you know time and other projects and all sorts of things intervened uh and then um we we kind of you know finally did start uh writing and then we realized that data breach harms and the data breach litigation had gotten so voluminous and so many cases and these were actually, uh, you know, had a lot more in common than the privacy harms, which seemed to be all over the place. So we thought, okay, you know, really, where 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 the the cases that we were, were thinking about and talking about were, were data breach, we should cover those together. And so we wrote a piece uh, called "Risk and Anxiety: A Theory of Data Breach Harms," uh, and uh, that was the first piece that we wrote on this topic. Uh, and, and then we said, we still really want to come back and tackle privacy harms. We want to write the paper that we had actually planned to write. Uh, so uh, still then more things intervened and so on and years passed. And then finally, we, we just said, you know, we really got to, you know, we really got to do this thing. We, we keep talking about it. We keep, you know, wanting to do it. We've kind of done a lot of the preliminary thinking of it. Um, but then we finally just said, okay, we're, we're going to, we're going to break ground and build this building. So we, we did. And it's actually, I think a good thing that we waited so long. I, th I think, you know, it, 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 what we've identified and the typology that we came up with, I, I think is more robust now than it would have been had we done it when we actually started talking. I mean, time really helped us, uh, you know, understand the issues more. There was a vast, uh, a vastly greater body of case law and a vastly greater body of, of, of scholarship out there that we could draw upon for insight. Uh, and that, I think, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it, it took as long as it did, because I think it's a better piece because of it. So it becomes an even more special paper when I know now that it took 10 years to be made. So it's a very... Uh, well thought and it, it took a decade to, to be written with, with all the insights. So I, I appreciate it even more. And I, I'm, I'm probably other people that read the paper and read also are familiar with your work and Daniel's work. I could see sometimes I, I was reading a part. I say, I, I, I hear Daniel write uh, when the, the part of the deep fakes and your part, when you're talking about typology, it's, it's funny how when you, you write, in four hands like this, you, I, I could hear your voices talking. So it was, uh, I, I love to read this paper and and I'm, I'm happy to hear that it took 10 years. And we, we are going to talk about that and also about one of the most fascinating part, at least for me, and that deeply influenced my PhD work was the, the part of autonomy harm. I do, my personal opinion, maybe you disagree with me, the part of autonomy and spe specifically, so I, one of my, my PhD chapters is about dark patterns. So the, the idea of UX tricks that make people share more and more sensitive data. 
And this body of law, the, the all reports and also legal changes, they all happened in 2022. Mass, the, the, a massive number of reports in basically end of 2021 and 2022. And I can see also, uh, and, and when you talk about autonomy and, and autonomy harm, and I see, and I was seeing a dark pattern, so it fits so so well together. So I, I was very inspired by reading uh, your, your paper and connecting it with dark patterns. But I hope to, to, co to talk about it soon. So the, the second point I'd like to, to discuss today is about the specific challenges of privacy harms that, that you mentioned. Uh, and, and the point I, I'd like to approach it here more from a, I would call privacy branding perspective. So you, you, you mentioned some uh, challenges that make privacy harms cognition difficult. And I, and I will tell what, what you wrote. So the, one, the first challenge is aggregation of, harm, of small harms. So some privacy harms, they, they become harmful because of the aggregation. So if you receive one email spam, right? One unwanted email is a minor inconvenience, but imagine someone receiving hundreds of unwanted emails a day. It's unbearable, it, it's horrible. Although each one is, is a small harm. So also is one thing that law has difficulty in dealing with. So second challenge is the un unknowable and future harms. For example, data breaches. It's we there's no material harm yet when the breach occurs. We don't know what happened and future uses of data of malicious parties. So also law has also difficulty in dealing with future and, and unknowable harms. And the third challenge that you mentioned is the individual versus uh, so, social harms, so social harms, social aspects of privacy harms. As so, lawsuits, they usually recognize the individual aspect, and there is also uh, co the collective aspects or, uh, the, in terms of values, and, and sometimes even class actions, they, they don't grasp well these more general uh, societal aspects of the harm. Um, and so I would like to, to bring these challenges. You, you, you discussed a lot in the paper uh, about the, the how it affects litigation and incentives to, to, to tackle those harms and to make them, uh, and, and well, to, to enforce and to avoid them. And I, I want to understand how your opinion, how do you think that those issues and how do, can we, given those challenges and they exist and probably they will keep existing in the privacy context, and, and and one point that I want to make, so for example, the, the thing of aggregation. So we, we usually say some people that they they don't let's say they they don't think privacy is something serious or so serious as security. They they think security is important and privacy is like an exaggeration. So they say you you privacy guys, you're focusing on on, on mar unwanted marketing. This is so silly. And, and so this aggregation aspect is sometimes it's difficult to explain and, and makes the privacy argument weaker because you, you, you talk about, let's say, consent or agreeing to receive an email and, and the other part, person might say, yeah, but the, the only problem will be uh, an, an unwanted email. It, it's, it's nothing. It's just a small inconvenience. So how can we realign this idea of privacy harms, privacy issues, privacy principles, privacy harms, in a way that also when we talk about privacy and when we explain privacy and we want to tell companies why it's important to invest in privacy and we want to tell people why, why it's important to learn about privacy, how do we realign the, the challenges that you explain and the reality that we want to, to make privacy meaningful? What's your opinion there? Yeah, and it is tricky because of the the the, the aggregation problem. Uh, the with, with with the fact that you know a lot of these uh, harms could be very small by each individual company. You know the problem is scale, 
Um, you know, we, we have a, a, just an immense scale these days with so many companies uh, gathering and using so much personal information. You know, you know, obviously there are, you know, some companies that, you know, eat a lot of, of data and do a lot of things. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, there's just so many out there uh, and it's it, it's increasingly hard uh, to manage one's privacy because the, the scale is, is just too vast. There's just too many companies. One thing just to manage it with one or two companies, but but with all of them, it becomes really hard. Uh, and so if, oh, it's no imposition if you just have to, you know, click unsubscribe on an email. Well, if there's only one uh, entity sending you that, that you have to do that to, okay, that's not that big of a problem. But for everybody at scale, it becomes really burdensome. And this happens a lot. And so each individual company and say, hey, you know, we're, we're just, you know, doing what we should do, but it, it just doesn't scale well. Uh, and so ultimately the, the law tends to, to focus on, you know, each individual actor, but not the collective. Uh, but it's the collective that, that really, uh, you know, drives this, this harm and makes it more significant. It's like death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and so the law needs to kind of get around this, this difficulty uh, because, you know, or, or else, you know, for each individual actor that they, they'll just do what they do, uh, thinking, hey, we're, we're, we're not doing anything that bad. Uh, it's small, but then, you know, collectively everyone is, is, uh, you know, being, being harmed. Uh, so there's that, uh, that, that issue. And then the other, you know, thing is sort of this larger, you know, the larger social uh, aspect to privacy harm. You know, privacy doesn't just affect you know, one, you know, like isolated individuals, it, it has larger social effects. And we see that with, you know, the Cambridge Analytica uh, and with other types of issues where um, they have societal effects and, and you know, certain uh, data is, you know, interdependent in, in a lot of ways. Uh, so the law's existing solutions to this are, are often, you know, very individualistic, uh, individual focused uh, when I think they need to also focus more on the kind of larger, you know, social implications of, of privacy problems, which, which I think is, is a common theme in the scholarship. It's been a theme in the scholarship for, you know, 30 plus years. Uh, scholars have uh, pointed out that, you know, privacy uh, obviously affects the individual, but it's not solely an individual issue. There is a social uh, component to this. Uh, and larger uh, harms on society that the law needs to address uh, and that the law has been way too focused on the atomistic individual. Um, I think what we're seeing today is that, you know, with AI, is that the shortcomings of privacy law that uh, folks have pointed out all throughout the years, myself and, and, and several others uh, included, um, really are, uh, you know, showing the, the their deficiencies uh, when we see AI, uh, which is a problem that, you know, we, we really uh, brings the kind of social dimension uh, right to the fore. Uh, and so I think that, you know, AI really shows how some of the limitations of privacy law in addressing uh, harm uh, really uh, you know, limits it, especially as we move into the world of 
uh, AI and these very complex algorithms at, at, at a dramatic scale. I, I I agree with you and and on the point and complementing a bit on the point of harm and definition. So I think now with AI, AI if we think okay, artificial intelligence, it, it sometimes it, or when when we discuss harms of artificial intelligence, we question what what is to be human. So if there is a machine that starts being, it starts helping us to be efficient or start there are tools that we can use to to substitute a human being to make a human being more efficient. So what it means to be human. And in this point, we come back to privacy. And we, if we talk about like Professor Luciano Floridi, privacy as human dignity, he, he equalizes the two values. Or privacy as something much broader than data protection. Let's look at data transactions and data cycles. So I love that. In the sense, I, I see a lot of intersection between the two fields when we look at privacy as protecting human dignity. Because when we have uh, data transactions ongoing all the time and many service providers collecting and processing data, uh, what the, these processes of data collection and processing, they are not only transactions. They start interfering what it means to be human. When everything, uh, every decision is made through an intermediary who is analyzing and predicting and, and pr profiling us and deciding what will be next and deciding who will be chosen. And then what it means to be human, what where are the choices? And, and, and I think in this sense, privacy, and we, we will talk about that again in the last section, but in this sense, this broader notion of privacy, which is more connected to privacy as a human right and privacy as human dignity, it's great to help with AI issues. When, because still, if we look at AI, and now AI is with the whole hype, but some of the, the, the things, the big things, what it means to be human, what are we protecting? And, and we are, I think that some of the aspects it means to protect human dignity, and I think privacy is very good. Although, although laws don't treat it as it, this way, I think privacy is a, is a great tool to, to, to bring this idea of human dignity. So let's now focus more on this as Professor Salov introduced this topic of privacy and AI. So let's talk about some specific privacy harms and their relationship with AI issues. So one of the harms is reputational harm. So I wanted to discuss a little bit reputational harm in the context of AI hallucinations or AI disinformation. So let's let's uh, recap. The, the, so the, these are the, the, the seven privacy harms that they are proposing. So physical harms, economic harms, reputational harms, psychological autonomy, discrimination, and relationships. So let's talk about reputational harms. Uh, I've, I've been discussing uh, the privacy whisper and so, on social media about AI hallucination. And now professional, uh, AI professionals, they don't like this, this term anymore. They, they prefer AI misinformation. And what it is, so most AI systems, let's say large language models like ChatGPT and other, other uh, AI-based chatbots, they have a, a rate of hallucination and, or misinformation. What it is, you, you ask something and it will sound very convincing but it's a total lie. So there were many cases. So if you ask, oh, Professor X, which books did he write? And then it was a list of fake books. And, and some people there, some journalists, they are preparing for uh, to interview. Uh, I saw with Professor Ryan Callow, he, he said that some journalist was interviewing him and asked about, he was attending a congressional hearing or something because the person, he, the journalist checked in ChatGPT and this, he was not going to go anywhere. And also there was some uh, other cases, some uh, recent cases of the lawyer recently that I posted about it as well. He was uh, writing a, a, a legal brief and then he cited cases that 
didn't exist. So now he's being punished by the judge. So the judge was, wow. So you cited some cases that never happened. So, and now the lawyer is suffering the consequences. And specifically about reputational harm. So these cases, let's say they were, let's say lighter, but that cannot, okay, there can be really uh, AI misinformation that causes harm. For example, there was a, a recent case of a lawyer that was, that, was being falsely accused by ChatGPT of having committed a sexual assault, and the, the whole and as the ChatGPT is very convincing, there was a whole it, it invented a whole story of when it happened and in what context, and the lawyer raised the, the, the issue. Look, I, I'm being it, it's a criminal accusation. This ChatGPT is coming up with this topic, and who will be liable? So it's very uncertain. This, so the, uh, OpenAI uh, through ChatGPT or to, in, to the void. Now everybody's using to whatever uh, applications people want. And okay, this lawyer said that, uh, the, the, the chat start, started outputting that he had committed a criminal offense. So my question and, and the topic I think is very important. So you, you proposed a reputational harm. And how do you see, do you think that this reputational harm in the privacy sphere could help us tackle issues now with, let's say, this example of the lawyer in ChatGPT, so AI uh, misinformation, and also who should, how should we treat liability? So if we use this privacy-based reputational harm to this context, how could courts think about it or professionals think about it? If maybe someone in the audience here is a lawyer and, and saw something happen, do you see a practical application with, with existing laws in this, uh, in this case of ChatGPT? Yeah, well, I, I think that you know, the law has generally, um, uh, you know, had a long-standing recognition of reputational harm. I mean, we've had you know defamation law for for centuries, uh, so we do have a firm basis in the law to provide some protection. When it comes to the story about the lawyer, um, I think that you know really doesn't involve uh, you know, a person's uh, identity or, or reputation. It's not really saying something about a specific person, so that body of law wouldn't help. I mean, I think that the lawyer, you know, essentially, you know, committed uh, you know, an infraction against the, the court with, with bad mm -hmm. lawyering. Uh, you know, you, you can't cite made up cases and should be punished. And, you know, the, you know, dog ate my homework excuse or the dog, <laughs> you know, wrote my brief excuse. Well, you know, AI wrote my brief. It's mm -hmm. absurd uh, to do that. And I think the lawyer should be punished. Uh, when it comes to the hallucinations about people, um, you know, that, that's, uh, that's something that, that's a common thing. Um, I went into, uh, you know, chat, uh, GPT three, uh, and so write a me, write a bio of me. Uh, so it wrote this bio and actually wrote a, a false, but wonderful bio. I, I got a PhD from, from Berkeley, it gave me a clerkship with, uh, Judge Guido Calabresi. It was really nice. It's like, cool. Uh, uh, so I liked what it did. It was, it was great to be awarded a PhD uh, by, by chat. Now, I think that, that some of these problems can be fixed. Uh, it could obviously be programmed in ChatGPT4, which I haven't had a chance to play around with yet. Might have fixed this. I don't know. Um, but it could certainly look and say, hey, you know, don't make stuff up, you know, look for authoritative sources because, you know, search actually has kind of figured this out. You know, how do you find the authoritative sources? You know, just look for, you know, official bios and draw from, from those. Don't just make it up. So I think it could be programmed to, um, you know, eventually do better fact checking to check it against different data sources to try to 
and of course that that could still fail. Um, you could still have instances where, you know, it, it looks for the authoritative source, but, you know, can't quite identify it correctly and so on. But I expect that that, that problem to, to improve, uh, you know, when it makes mistakes, uh, you know, you apply the existing law would, would say, you know, if, if, if you are, you know, asserting something to somebody else uh, and holding it out as something that is true, uh, and it's not, it's false. Uh, you can sue for defamation if it harms somebody's reputation. You could sue for false light if it causes someone emotional distress. So if somehow I was distressed by, you know, being given a PhD, I, I could say that's a false light. Or if it said something bad about me, I could sue for defamation. And I, I think that, you know, there's, a, you know, a, the law has some remedies for, for those kind of things. But I, I ultimately you know, suspect that that problem will be uh, will be uh, Im improved upon in, in the future. Uh, but there's another scary aspect of where um, these technologies could impact reputation. And that is when people use them deliberately to try to create fakes. Um, this is the deep fake problem where people will, will try to, you know, create fake videos, fake porn videos of, of people, uh, fake videos of people, um, saying things or doing things that they've never done, fake photographs, um, we're seeing this occur, uh, and the ability to spoof and fake is going to, uh, dramatically increase because technologies are getting better and better about masking those little, uh, those little clues, uh, those little uh, things that uh, you know give it away, uh, and so as this this gets better and better, it's going to be really hard to tell what's real and and what's not real, uh, and then this could really damage people tremendously uh, to have all this uh, the, these fake images and fake videos and voice spoofing. I mean, you can you know, spoof someone's voice and make it sound like they're saying things. Uh, and so I think that this is a, a scary future uh, because it it will enable anybody, uh, people with malicious motives to uh, do things to damage other people's reputation versus just, you know, the hallucinations of, of, of a, of a chatbot. Um, and, and that scares me a lot. Because, you know, the, the, these are malicious actors trying to do this, uh, spread this information. Uh, and it's, you know, someone sophisticated, they can spread it in ways that uh, cloaks their identity or even makes them difficult to trace. Uh, so this stuff can get, get out there. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's really hard to find, you know, who did it. Uh, and, and ultimately also can be tricky about, you know, cleaning it up off the Internet uh, when it starts to circulate. And specifically about let, let's take the example again. And, and you see the coincidence, two lawyers. The first lawyer was the one that made the mistake. And the second one was uh, there's some the strategy has something against lawyers. We need to, to check that. It's a uh, worry. So specifically about the liability, what, because it's ChatGPT or AI-based chatbots, it, they're not search engines. So what if a person, a journalist says, uh, I had good faith because I, I check in ChatGPT and that's what it was written. It was very convincing. So in, in this sense, I think it can be another level of trick also. Who, who's, 
when, when you go, when there is search, there are websites. You, you search something on Google, let's say there is a list of websites with links, so liability is clear. So you, you come here, this website, you see, is it reliable, is it not reliable? And I think what some people are still, and that's why we saw the, the lawyer case, the, the, the first lawyer, the one that made, the, the, that wrote the, the, legal, the legal thing with the fake cases. I think people are still, they don't understand that it's just a language model. So for some people it's, and I wrote about it, it's like an oracle, right? It, it, it spits out the right answers because it, it's so concise and it looks like it digested the whole internet. So for some people, it looks very convincing and, and it, it sounds very anthropomorphizing. So it says, uh, th this is according to sources and it sounds convincing. And for some people, they will say in good faith, listen, I checked and this lawyer, it, it was written a very convincing story that this lawyer committed sexual assault. So do you see, would it be, who, who would be the, so the, do you think there should, would it be possible to say that this person had good faith and because we are still in this transitional phase of understanding how to deal with technology, and so this, this would be a good faith excuse, and I don't know, nobody would would be liable. Oh no, uh, there we should this part because from what you, you said, you, I understood that the liability would be who used the data. So if I use ChatGPT and I have a false accusation of someone committed sexual assault, and I'm a journalist and I publish it, I will be liable for the reputational harm. Do you think there could be an argument of someone, uh, maybe uh, a trainee, a, a, a journalist that is beginning, or someone in another context that said, really, it, it, it's a good faith. I checked in this tool. It provided me a whole history, and I don't think that there was good faith. I, I, I thought I was really researching something that makes sense. Yeah, well, it, it's complicated because a couple things is that I think that... Um, uh, artificial intelligence is actually a little bit of a misnomer for the technology that's out there. Everyone's calling it AI. It really is it's an algorithm that simulates intelligence, but it's not actual intelligence. It's not smart. Um, it is simulating. It's trying to pretend uh, and mimic how a human would talk or a human would respond or a human would write. Uh, but it's still lacking human judgment. It really doesn't have judgment. It just tries to look at, at, at patterns of what's out there and mimic. Uh, so I think that it, you know, we, we, you know, it's being held out as this kind of magic, uh, but it's not magic. Uh, and it doesn't quite, you know, it's not the, you know, sentient robot out, out there. So I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, I think we're, we're calling it something that it's not. Uh, and that might confuse people. People might really think that, you know, the simulation, the simulated intelligence is is real, but but it's really not. And so we might say, OK, we, we can forgive that, you know, people might, uh, you know, be operating under wrong assumptions or really thinking that, you know, that that's something, you know, not really understanding what's going on. Uh, I think on the other hand, um, there is a little bit of common sense. I mean, I think that, you know, lawyers uh, and professionals uh, need to, uh, you know, be a little bit more on the know. I mean, you wouldn't want your doctor saying, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna, you know, come up with, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, uh, you know, operation uh, procedure or or a diagnosis just by, you know, having Chat GPT generate wh whatever it it makes up." Um, we expect that they understand, you know, when they use a technology, when they use a tool. They should know how the tool works. 
uh, and, and should really understand it before using it, uh, you know, especially if they're a professional. For, for just the average person, you know, they might not really know, they might not fully understand. And I think the companies that make the technologies, uh, you know, pump up the magic. Uh, and 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 they want it to look magical. They want people to think it's AI because saying it's AI is sexy. Uh, uh, so they 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 want that kind of excitement rather than just oh it's just an algorithm faking it. Uh, so I think they're responsible in certain ways because they're putting it out there without the you know adequate disclaimers uh, and maybe they have them but they're buried. But but you know the. The hype of it and everything else and the reason why it's become so popular uh, and so exciting is, I think, due to exploiting, you know, people's full understanding of of how it works. It's trying to create that magic. And then if you create that magic and you try to lure people into using this uh, and and don't adequately educate them, people are going to think it's true. People are, are not going to realize that, you know, this is all a hallucination uh, or that a lot of these facts are, are just made up. And I think the companies bear responsibility for what they've wrought um, because they are contributing to that that misunderstanding. It's just like you know, if, if I make a, a, a product, a tool, and it. I, I kind of push people to use it in a certain way, and that way is dangerous and harmful to others. I'm, I'm responsible for you know my creating the tool and then you know fostering its misuse. Uh, and I think that's what's going on with with this with 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 a, a lot of the AI now. And I think there are responsible uses. So I don't think it's per se a problem if if you know, something is made up. So if I say, hey, make up a story uh about a person you know because i want to create a fictional account of of william shakespeare so make something up about uh, about shakespeare uh and it does that's fine you know uh, you know that's what the tool is is doing but if i say hey i want to know more about you know a, a real person and it sends me something that's false now you know i'm under you know, an impression that i'm getting something that is an actual, you know, true account of them. I'm getting actual information, which is what happened to the lawyer. The lawyer said, I, I want to, I want actual cases. I want actual law. Help me write this brief. Um, you know, understand is not make, make up a fake brief with fake cases. Uh, well, if the technology isn't clear what it's doing. I think that, you know, you're, you're creating a dangerous tool without adequate, uh, without adequate warning. And specifically about, I, I agree with you, and I have my, my point of view is paternalistic in this sense of uh, acknowledging that there is a informational symmetry and power symmetry, so companies should be responsible. And also, if you think specifically about ChatGPT, the answers comes in the first person, I, I, I. So I, this is the beginning. It should be perhaps something that to make clear that is they make it, okay, conversational. So it's a chat. So, uh, But also the chat format and answering as I, uh, according to my, as a chat, as a large language model, I cannot, but this I, it, it brings the idea of, of an entity, right? So I think it's also an interesting way. I, I would be against it. If I was the regulator, I, I would say that the, the answers, the output of a large language model should be 
the system, the, the, the answer provided by the system is something more impersonal to give this idea that there is a statistical uh, tool, not, not uh, an entity or something that will give you some type of uh, knowledge or or, or, or human, something similar to the human being. And, and continue, let, let's move to the next point. I think it's related to what you said about the fake thing and, and deep fakes and everything fake. I think it's very important. And, and I brought a question about that and related to autonomy harm. So I, I, I'm fascinated by this topic of autonomy. I, I think uh, it was also part of, so my master's thesis I write, I wrote about uh, autonom autonomy preserving protective measures to improve consent in privacy. So today I think it's a horrible title, but okay, it was my, my master's thesis. But I, I love the idea of autonomy. I think autonomy is something very important that makes us human, the ability to choose what life we want to have, how do we want to act, what, what are our choices in our, our, our way in life. And so I want to discuss a bit, the, using the idea of autonomy harm in privacy to fight dark patterns in AI. So uh, I, I wrote about dark patterns in privacy, the idea of UX tricks that make people share more data. And recently, in the, the Privacy Whisperer, I started developing this idea of dark patterns in AI. So I define dark patterns in AI as two main uh, types of practices. So first one would be deepfakes. So AI applications that make people believe that something is true when it's not. So for example, that fake image of the Pope with the white coat or fake presidents hugging themselves or the, the, the fake image of the Pentagon on fire and also the, the, the example that you mentioned of revenge porn and, and, and fake pornography to, to, to damage someone's reputation. So this is all about fakes and, and trying to use in technology and AI technology to convince people that something is real when it's not. So this would be the, the first category of dark pattern AI. And the second one I'm calling uh, anthropomorphization which would be AI applications that make people believe that there is a human behind. So the typical use would be like apps like Replica or AI companions. And I heard that Snap also has, if you log into Snap, everything and maybe ChatGPT in some level when it answers us. I, so it, it's a human way to behave. So anything that an AI system, any characteristic that can make it more or can try to to pretend that there is a human behind. So uh, this, is, this would be another type of, of manipulation. So what's in common between fake and anthropomorphization? They, those are applications that confuse people. They manipulate people. It's normal people, because the technology, technology is so precise and so good into, uh, in hiding, the, 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 as you mentioned, the little glitches that we, would help us uh, distinguish fake from truth. Technology is so good that now I, I, I really personally that that image of the Pope the first time I saw it you saw it the the, the Pope with the fluff the fluffy coat that was viral I look at that image I was sure I said wow the Pope is very fashionable and then it was fake and then more recently much more dangerous the the the, the image of the Pentagon on fire it could lead really to a war you can imagine a, a fake Twitter account tweeting a fake image of the Pentagon saying that X country has bombed this. So let's talk about uh, autonomy harm in this context. So we, we spoke about uh, all those fake that AI can create, and this is a problem. Uh, and I think we are already having this problem. What's fake and what's not? It's every time every time I open any social media, I have I look at images and videos. And say, is it fake? Is it uh, AI or not? So a central issue in these dark patterns is the the, the interference with freedom of choice and accuracy of choice. 
Uh, and uh, so what's the relationship with the privacy area? So how do we make the bridge? So I think the replica case, the, 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 when the, so the Italy Data Protection Authority, they banned replica, this AI companion. And replica was, the, the, if you look at the website, it was a, an, a, an app that they, they were marketing it as you, you can find your lifelong partner. And people were describing how they had a relationship with AI uh, and you could choose the avatar and you could choose, uh, you could talk with the avatar and have, uh, they kind of they're really romantic. If you look at the marketing, they were branding it really as even sexual romantic partner. And, and the Italian Data Protection Authority banned this app on the, on the grounds of being uh, exploiting vulnerable populations and children using it. So because it was so intimate, and you can imagine with this fake this uh, fake appearance of there being, uh, uh, let's say, an AI boyfriend or AI uh, relationship, people were sharing whatever intimate information and vulnerable people, men, people in a vulnerable, mentally vulnerable situations and children. So the Italian data protection banned it. And I think that there are other situations in which th those fake images or videos or, or anything that tries to pretend that it's real and it's not, will interfere in human ability to choose and to decide what's true and what's not. So from your point of view, the idea of autonomy harming privacy, could be useful to tackle, for example, the deep fakes, or if there is an image that starts a movement or even a democratic issue, could we tackle that those type of problems with autonomy harm in privacy, as you proposed, or, or those are two separate things? Well, I think they, you know, it, it, it sort of d depends. Um, you know, privacy, I mean, not all AI problems are privacy problems, although there's certainly a big overlap. If you're doing a Venn diagram, you know, they would overlap and there would be parts where, you know, AI arms diverge from privacy ones. So if it's something dealing with, uh, you know, some event or, or something that's not about a person, uh, then it might not be a privacy harm. But if it's, if it's trying to create a fake image about an event to, uh, influence a person to to get a person to do things to get a person to share information. So let's say I, I, I spoof something about you know a uh, you know, a city or a house being blown up. You know to to scare a person into you know, oh my gosh do you have loved ones in that place you know will you give me your information so I can give you more you know then that that does involve a manipulation of a person to you know gather their their data or to have them act in a certain way. So anytime you're kind of acting on a person to try to change their behavior, influence their behavior uh, through the use of these tools, I think you you are are into the realm of of, of privacy in, in certain ways. You're you're trying to manipulate or 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 control uh, shape behavior, uh, and and I think that th these tools can help do that. But there are many other ways, you know, without these tools to do it as well. You, you can manipulate and, and, and coerce behavior, um, you know, with other things, not necessarily just AI. But, you know, there are AI tools can be used for that purpose. When you're using it for that, that, that aim, if that's what you're doing with it, then I think it does uh, involve, uh, involve privacy problems because you're trying to trick people. Um, that's what that dark patterns are trying to do. They, they'll either try to trick people or they will try to uh, create, uh, you know, un unpleasant or, or, or time consuming or difficult uh, situations where, or, or choices where, you know, if you want to 
you know, do the, the privacy protective thing, it's going to take you a lot longer. It's going to be more confusing. It's going to be hard to do. So they'll either make it uh, a pain to do it, uh, more painful than just sharing the information, or they'll try to deceive. Uh, and I, I can help, especially on the deception front of, you know, how do you make it uh, you know, deceptive? But also you, you have, um, it, you know, you, you can use AI to, you know, call people and, and spoof a human pretending like it's a real person that you're talking to, uh, to extract information or to trick people in certain ways, or, you know, AI chatbots. And you don't know, am I talking to a human? Am I not talking to a human? Uh, you know, who, who is, you know, this is programmed to try to impersonate a person. Uh, and I think it is a problem if, if, you know, I'm talking on the phone to someone or, uh, having a video conversation with someone or a chat with someone and they're not a real person. You know, I'm, I'm wasting my time. I'm, I'm, I'm being deceived in, you know, my uh, ability to communicate with, an, uh, with, with, with someone else. Uh, and I think that does impinge on expectations, uh, which is an impingement on uh, my, my autonomy, my, my freedom. It's a disrespect for, for, for my, um, uh, you know, time uh, and effort, uh, you know, I, I have a false consciousness about, you know, who I'm dealing with. Uh, and, and it, and, you know, it's all fake. In a way, it's kind of like an analogy might be made to, to the Truman Show, uh, where you know, this movie where this guy was living in this, this constructed bubble and all his friends and all his, uh, and his spouse were, were actors who were hired and paid. Uh, and it's all fake. Uh, and you know his, his, he's a kind of like this this uh, this thing uh, being you know fed stimuli to see you know what will he do next, and if AI is kind of doing the same thing, it's just you know in a way right it, it, it's very similar to you know spoofing things that we interact with uh, to get reactions out of people, and so yes, I think there, there's a harm there. And do you think that current law is mature enough that could be applica immediate application and it would have to be like legal gymnastics from lawyers? Do you think it's law is ready or we, we need more, let's say more? Law is never ready. And law has never been ready. It's never been mature. Law is very immature. Um, and, you know, law is, is basically a, a two-year-old toddler having a tantrum. Um, but it has, I, I do think that, you know, that there, there are aspects of the law that, um, have a lot of power and have a lot of promise. I think that, you know, there's, uh, you know, with a robust imagination, the law can get there. The law can help. Um, the law always is going to have this catch-up problem. Um, it's always going to need to develop, but um, it is possible. There are uh, aspects of the law that, that can work and do work. I mean, one thing that uh, Danielle and I, discuss in the privacy harms article is that um, there are uh, things in the law, cases and doctrines that could really recognize privacy harm if they were developed. And I think that there's a lack of imagination, a lack of imagination uh, sometimes with the lawyers bringing the cases that they don't see all the potential in the law and don't bring that up and uh, show how this already exists in the law. So I often look at the papers that lawyers would submit 
was I, I you know, used to do a lot of consulting and I saw what 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 was done and I I, I really just look at so much left on the table, so much not mentioned uh, to courts that could have been possible if the argument had been made well and if the right cases had been brought to the court's attention. And also there's a failure of imagination on judges as well and legislatures where they don't, you know, see, you know, they don't spend enough time really thinking about things or, or, or learning about all the different uh, aspects of the law. You know, law has a tremendous power, but you have to imagine and you have to think big. Uh, and, and one thing is I, I see that often that's not the case. I mean, right now, states are passing all these privacy laws uh, inspired by California. And a lot are, you know, kind of like watered down versions of the California law. Well, why not be creative? Why not sit there and think about uh, about this issue and really come up with something new? You know, stop just cutting and pasting, uh, doing what's easy and actually become familiar with the issue. Maybe consult with some experts and scholars and people who've thought about this for a very long time to come up with something that could be really good and effective rather than just, oh, okay, well, you know, this state did it and that state did it, so let's just copy and paste it. Um, so it, it's, uh, in a way, like AI is more imaginative than <laughs> legislators and courts sometimes. So I think like, you know, with a robust imagination and seeing the potential of the law, it really can develop, but, but you, need, you need that component to, to get it to mature. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, the law still has a long way to go uh, because the law is stuck in some old ways of thinking uh, with some old approaches that just don't work. They don't scale. Uh, so, you know, we've got our work cut out for us. The beautiful message about the creative power of underused creative power of law. And I think, uh, so let, let's, I will skip one of the questions, otherwise you will go, we'll not have time for question for, for the questions from the audience. Let's talk a little briefly because Professor Love, Solov has another webinar next week with uh, Omer Ten and who is the other person? I forgot the, the other panelist. Yeah, it, it's going to be with Brenda Leong and uh, Omer Tene. Omer Ten, yeah, about AI, is AI policy a privacy issue? So I don't want to cover the, his other uh, webinar, but I want to close our discussion just with the, uh, I, think, I, I, I think this topic is great. And I think privacy professionals around the world have this, this doubt. And I think now you see the, the AIPP uh, is, no, the IAPP, sorry. IAPP started the AI governance and privacy professionals are, are really diving deep into AI issues and AI governance and AI Act. It looked for, for Europeans and for anyone working with European law. If you work with GDPR, it, it, it flows so naturally that you're going to work with the AI Act too. So there is this issue of uh, really what, what's the intersection and, and we started the conversation with this topic, right? How can ideas of, let's say broad ideas of privacy and, and protecting dignity, how can we use this ready set infrastructure and concepts and even regulatory powers to, to help with AI issues? So uh, let's, let's just uh, do something brief. So what in your view are the main ways that what we have already for privacy, both laws and the, the privacy programs and, and privacy professionals and 
maybe even privacy certifications and all, all the infrastructure that we already have for privacy, how can we use this, what's already done, to, to influence or to help with AI governance or to, to tackle AI issues on what mainly, let's say, AI issues could be easily uh, solved with the, with the help of privacy? What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, privacy has uh, an infrastructure and uh, laws and professionals who are thinking uh, deeply about these issues. And so I think that's great to draw from. That doesn't mean that, you know, we can just take uh, existing privacy laws and you know, apply them and they're all going to solve everything. I mean, that that's that's definitely not the, the case. Um, I'm going to give a preview of, of what I'm going to be saying in the webinar, which is that um, while it's certainly true that, you know, we can't, you know, you know, just fold AI into privacy and uh, all the privacy laws and all the approaches that privacy programs do are just going to magically solve everything for AI. They, they won't because it's not exactly the same, but there, there's, there's similarities and, uh, you know, there, there's a benefit to tap into the privacy infrastructure. Um, first, and with a lot of companies, they, they don't have anyone else who are, are thinking about the issues, uh, the ethical issues about data use, collection, and so on. Uh, and so uh, the, the privacy team, uh, th they are uh, focused on these issues. So I think it's good to draw upon them until we have a whole separate group of folks, uh, you know, focused just on AI, who are you going to turn to in, in, in an organization? Well, the, the privacy uh, officer is, is the one who, or the data protection officer is the one who uh, is thinking about these larger ethical issues uh, and is sort of already in the in that space. Uh, so they're a good person to turn to. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean we just take take out their existing hammer and start just using it, but they at least have some of the background uh, to understand these ethical issues. So they're, they're a wise person to, to turn to for help here uh, when we don't have anyone else uh, to, uh, to start thinking about these issues. So I think it's a natural thing for, you know, privacy professionals to start uh, trying to tackle. Um, but as you tackle this problem, I think that, you know, it's always good to do so with, with an open mind to, to kind of look at it, to really understand it, to think about its problems uh, and not just kind of dust off, you know, the existing laws and tools and think, okay, we'll just, we'll just apply these mechanically. Um, it, it always starts with a kind of, you know, deep uh, thinking and study of something to really understand it and then see, you know, when can we use existing tools and when do we need new tools or, 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 or need to think about other things. Uh, but I think that we at least have a starting point. And I think privacy is a good starting point because we built uh, so much, uh, so much law, so much scholarship, so many professionals who have been thinking about it. Uh, conferences and events. There, there's all sorts of, uh, uh, th there's a lot there. And, and I, I, I can analogize or, or you know, to, um, you know, the early days of privacy. Um, uh, when I started uh, in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, you know, none of this infrastructure really existed. Uh, there were only a few scholars. There wasn't a lot to read. There weren't that many events. There were just starting to be um, uh, the IPP didn't exist. Uh, 
you had hardly any privacy officers or privacy programs or even privacy lawyers uh, in in firms or anywhere else. So it was it was a very different world. And, uh, you know, it was hard because, you know, there, there was very little to, to go on, very little guidance. Now that we have this infrastructure, it's tremendously valuable. And I think that we can tap into its power. Uh, it can really help in digesting these issues and understanding these issues. And so, um, you know, it's not we don't have to start on, I wouldn't say a blank slate, but a, a very empty slate. Um, with with AI, we can tap into privacy. And then as the issues, you know, there are differences, we can go down those those paths uh, and explore it, but at least start from something uh, pretty robust and, and developed. Uh, and I think that's a good thing that, that we, we have what what has arisen in the last 25 years. Uh, it's quite astounding. And um, there, there's a lot of thinking and, and good wisdom uh, to, to be found uh, among, uh, among scholars, among privacy professionals, um, uh, among policymakers. I mean, there's a lot there. And, and I, I think that it would be wise to uh, study it, look at it, and use the infrastructure that we have as a launching pad. I agree. And I think on a practical level, especially if some people here, they work with European law too. There will be intersections and, and application of, uh, there will be situations in which, in which both the AI Act and the GDPR will be applicable. So there, there will be certainly communication and, and a, a joint strategy to, to do the, the impact assessment for AI and for GDPR and privacy impact assessment and the AI assessment. So I think also in terms of practical compliance, that, that from what we have so far uh, of the AI Act, there will be a lot of intersections. So in, in any case, I think those, those professionals, if it will be the same professional in the company or, or different people, they will be. I think there will be there will be communication and, and joint strategy to, to solve issues. So I think now we, we finished the main part of the discussion. I I, I saw some people commenting uh, here that there were issues with the video. I hope it's solved now because. We are here and it didn't finish yet. So now uh, from the audience, if you have questions, please write here. Let's try to, to answer, let's say three questions, three, four questions, because we are, we are getting late here. So if, if you have questions, please post it now on the comments. Then we are, I'm going to, to read a few of them. So Zander Arnaus asked, would establishing a specialized export agency for digital technologies help policy keep pace with technology change? What do you think? Would? Um, I'm of two minds about that. I mean, I do like the idea of a, uh, a specialist kind of looking at these issues. On the other hand, I also uh, like a kind of bottom-up uh, dispersed approach uh, because one danger if you have one agency to rule them all, one that's just focused on it, they can get, you know, myopically focused on something and, and fail to see some interesting parallels to other areas of law. Uh, so I think that more imaginative thinking uh, involves thinkers from different perspectives. Uh, and also, I, I also think that, you know, for, for, you know, dangers of agency capture um, and, and other influence, you know, having many different uh, sources of, uh, policymakers that are uh, on the beat, 
uh, enforcing, thinking about these issues, developing policy can be a good thing. I mean, it's messier for sure, uh, but it, it, it can be good. Now, I think that certainly there's there's a great benefit to having uh, policymakers who are uh, really steeped in these issues and are experts. But I, I, I don't like that to the exclusion of having you know many uh, different agencies and others involved. Uh, so I'm happy to add something like that, but I wouldn't want to unify everything into one entity uh, and then not have the others also uh, on the beat uh, looking into it. Cause I think there's a great benefit despite the mess that, that it can lead to. Okay, uh, I agree with you. And, and I think it's uh, more creative power and more decentralization is better. And I think that there were very scarce. So one here, I, I mean, there was one interesting one that I'm not finding the person, but it was ah, here. Sayed Mohammed Azin asked, is there any possibility to recognize AI as an accountable person? What do you think? Is there? Well, I don't think it, I mean, AI is not really a, person. It, it, it's just a, a simulation, an algorithm that's designed by a, uh, an entity. Uh, and so, you know, a person or entity designs this thing to, to do a function. But I don't think that the AI itself is, is any kind of recognizable entity or, or, or wouldn't have, you know, its own agency uh, because it's not intelligent. Uh, it, it, it's, it, that's just all to simulation. It's an algorithm simulating, uh, trying to make it seem that we are talking to a person uh, or that there's someone who actually is a person on the other side or who looks like a person, speaks like a person, uh, but they're not a person uh, at, at the end of the day. Uh, we're not there with, with AI uh, like we are in sci-fi where you actually have these um, you know, sentient robots who uh, who think on their own and, and have their own you know, emotions and their own desires, um, we're not there. Uh, and so I, I don't think that we, we recognize AI for anything other than a, a tool uh, created by an entity. Agreed. And last question for today is from Philip Mason. How are ChatGPT hallucinations different from bad Google search results? Uh, this I, I, I can not yeah. also, but you, you can start here. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, a, a search results are, um, you know, ultimately uh, search results are just pointing to these are things on the Internet that, you know, an algorithm has, you know, identified as relevant, um, but they don't necessarily purport to be true. Uh, and I think in the context uh, it, it's not clear that there's any um, indication that that the results are actually you know true or not. They're just things that on a search. Whereas in the the Chat GPT, you know, you ask it for a bio, you ask it to you know write a brief. Um, you're, you're asking it for give me true information about somebody, um, and then it doesn't. That, that's different because you're asking for something different. Uh, and, and so that's why I think that there's a difference there. I agree with you. And and also the thing of the, the sources and the way I think the design and the product it, and the way people use it, it influenced the way the technology or the, the developer of the technology should be liable or not. 
So that's it for today. Thank you so much. I, before we finish, I, I want to thank you so much, Professor Zolov, for being here with us today. It's, I'm, I'm super grateful and happy, excited. Uh, I'm a super fan. Your, your work has inspired my advocacy and my PhD. And, and I think you, your contribution to the privacy community is unique. Is You're one of the, the most important scholars today. So I could not be happier to have you here today. And I, do you want to, to tell a, a less something for the audience, invite them to, to follow you, to read something specifically? Any, any final message that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, so um, uh, I, I hope that, you know, you, you can uh, sign up for my newsletter. I have a newsletter um, uh, as, as well as a blog uh, where I, I, I post stuff on, on my company's website, teachprivacy.com. So if you go there and you, you'll look and you can hunt around for where to sign up for the newsletter, um, that has information about my scholarship, events, and uh, blog posts. I, I also uh, have cartoons and uh, create other resources. So if that's of interest to you, um, please check that out and you can keep up to date by, um, uh, by or, or follow me on, on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. And uh, you can also keep up with uh, some of the things that I'm writing and doing. Thank you so much. So everyone, thank you for joining. If you want to keep informed and to be informed about the next uh, events, please sign up for the Privacy Whisper, www.theprivacywhisper.com. And see you next month in the next live event of the Privacy Whisper. Bye-bye.